What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Just Friends. You know, I feel like every week I tell you guys how excited I am about the episode. And the truth is, it's because I am genuinely excited every week. Uh, But I have a couple of friends in my life who I particularly appreciate their point of view. I love having the opportunity to talk with them. I could literally talk for hours unceasingly with today's guest. I find him that interesting, and I just love him that much. It's our old friend. Mr. Brian Williams. Guys, he was the very first person I ever had on the podcast. And now he's the very first guest to return for a second solo episode. And I don't think it disappoints. We get to catch up with Brian. We get to learn about what he's been up to. We get to hear so much about how he's been feeling lately and how he's been dealing with this tumultuous world that we live in. And Full disclosure, we were both consuming beverages of the adult variety, and perhaps myself a little bit more than Brian, so we may get off into the weeds a tad little bit, but I still think that this was a really fun episode. It's what you get when me and Brian get in the room together. I think it's because we just know that we love each other so much and we just feel so safe talking to one another that our conversations are some of the most genuine and meaningful conversations I've ever had and I'm happy that I got to share this little one with you and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you our friend, Mr. Brian Williams. Here we are again. I think you're my first round too. Really? You're definitely not the first person to make a second appearance. Oh. But you're the per- first person to have two individual episodes. Okay, so I'm like a sequel. Yeah, you're like a sequel. Yeah. I think you're worthy of a sequel. Oh, I hope the listeners also agree with that. I believe they will. So last time we talked, at least on here, you were living in Memphis. Correct. I believe you had uh, you were working on a master's degree. Yes. Which we celebrated during COVID. <laughs> we did. Yeah. It was so weird. It, it was awesome though, man. I thought it was fun. Yeah. It it was fun in the sense that I didn't have to wear real clothes or like show up to an arena and sit yeah. around like hot, like sweaty people for four hours. Yeah. That part I really liked. I got to eat chicken in the middle of the day instead of waiting. So that part, yeah, it was pretty cool. I see what you're saying though. I was thinking more <laughs> about like the party. And how how well it turned out and how fun it was. But you're thinking about the actual experience of like, this was your graduating with your master's degree. Yeah. And it should have been like this event and it just wasn't. Yeah. Well, I feel like when you go through undergrad, that first like undergrad degree, it's like a big deal. And everyone's like, yeah. And you're like sitting in this huge arena and you're like, this is so cool because I'm like doing it. And then when the master's comes around, like the master's is like a weird in between. Like, I feel like if I was a PhD, I would be like, let's go. I got the cool little silly cap and I got like the whole stoles and everything. But a master's is just like, cool, like round, like you're on round two, but you're not quite to the boss level. (laughs) Like, congratulations, you beat round one four years ago, but now here's round two. And you're like, well, this was cool, but no one really cares. I'm like the middle child. The, the, The master's degree is the middle child degree. Right, it's like the one that's in the middle. Where it's like moderately exciting when you hit a ball, but no one's really like, "Oh yeah, cool." So. I, one thing I noticed about a master's degree is like the robe. So you know, like when you go to graduation, you wear, like for high schools, you as a teacher, you wear your robe. Mm-hmm. 
a regular robe is okay. Right. A doctoral robe is gangster. Oh, it's It's got all kinds of little like spots on it. It's the master's robe is the worst one. It's just got these weird things that just shoot out underneath your sleeves that right. hang down longer than your hands like your harry potter or something that's all it is <laughs> it's very it's weird right <laughs> yeah Isn't it's it weird? weird and i always thought that that would be like not cool as a teacher to just have the masters but the phd was like the mac daddy one that's yeah. the one where i'm always like they look like a boss like a boss a boss like you know that person has a doctor like everyone else in the room you might be like yeah i don't know what their standing is and then the person with the doctor robe comes in you're like that is is the person in the room that everyone wants to be well i also feel like once you got that doctorate it's like you're gonna spring for the fancy robe so you're not getting the one that's made out of that like cheap ass little (laughs) wimpy fabric you're getting the velvet robe Oh yeah, you're getting it's that thick. heavy ass robe. It's like a, you look like fucking Dumbledore. You look like you belong at the head of like a castle school. It feels like, and some of the listeners might get this reference. Most might not. Um, the album cover with Cameron, and he has a pink like fur coat on. That's what I imagine. It feels like you're wearing a pink fur coat. Like not only is it loud, and everyone's like, "Yo, you're a doctor," but it's also cozy as hell. Yep. So when you walk into the room, people are like, damn. And you're like, yeah, and I can also take a nap in this. Right, and you don't you don't have to wear clothes underneath it. It's very I, luxurious. I wouldn't. No. It's probably so warm that yeah. I would just honestly be naked underneath That's my, exactly what it is. And I'm a doctor, so what are you going to say to me? Right. So you got your master's degree in sociology, right? Oh, yeah. That's cool. That's my baby. So you got it, your bachelor's degree in sociology from mm-hmm. UofL and then your master's from University of Memphis. That's right. That's cool. I like backslid. It's ironic. I feel like a lot of people get that first degree and they're like, now I need to move up to a nicer, higher ranked school. Yeah. And I remember a couple of months ago, I should have did this ahead of time. I'm a terrible (laughs) planner. But a couple of months ago, I looked at college rankings, which that's a whole conversation because I fundamentally disagree with the way that we rank colleges. Yeah. But I went and I was like, yeah, why not? I'll go look. And I'm like just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And I'm like, all right, let's just search this. <laughs> it's like when something's so far in a document, you're like, I need to search this. So then I finally control like, F. Pl- yeah, control F, University of Memphis. It's like way down in like the 200s and something. And then I search Louisville and it's like 150. And I was like, oh, well, I really went the wrong direction on yeah. this master's situation. But I saved a lot of money. Nice. <laughs> so, nice. <laughs> cheers to no uh, debt, no college debt. Yeah, so after you finished your master's though, like... Andrea, your significant other, threw you an awesome party, which I was in attendance at, and it was amazing. But now, like, that kind of put you guys in, like, a serious transitionary period, didn't it, for quite some time? What was that like? It was honestly a lot more than I thought it was going to be, as far as, like, I didn't really expect it to be become what it was, right? Like, that whole month of May was insane, and that's not what I'd even, even projected in my mind, right? Because coming from teaching for a couple of years and then deciding, okay, I want to get the master's, right? And I want to stay in Memphis. I had this sort of pie in the sky idea that after that master's, I would still be in Memphis, right? Just doing my thing. And me and Andrea got together that summer before that master's program. So shout out to her because she has been with me through a lot of periods where I am not financially in a great place or like am really like doing cool things it's like she's working and like being a boss in her own right and then i'm like turning in papers like i'm still 22 
not to knock the master's situation, but there were people in my program that were like 22, mm-hmm. 21. And it was super cute because they would talk about these things. And then I'd be like, well, <laughs> wait till you get there. Wait till you work in public education for yeah. two years at least. And then you're like, oh, shit, forget everything that I think is theoretically what it's like. I'm like, no, I'm gonna tell you what it's like. So it really just like escalated quickly when we got to May and it came to, all right, I'm about to graduate. There's a pandemic. My lease is expiring on the place that I live, as is her lease. We've been together for it'll be two years, darn near. And it's like, all right, well, now we're at the point where we live together and we are, she's has a job. I don't. I'm trying to find one. And we're trying to decide, do we stay here in Memphis or do we move on somewhere else? But wherever we move on, it's like we are collectively making this decision. It's no longer like I'm sitting in the room and I'm like, where do I want to get this master's? Or like, where do I want to hang out for a few years? It's like, we have to decide this is a place we both want to be. And yeah, and, that was scary. And you love Memphis. Because mm. we talked about that last time, yeah. I rationally love <laughs> Memphis, which most people, if you're not from Memphis, you probably are like, what the hell is so special about Memphis? If you are from Memphis, you might say, this place sucks and I can't wait to get out. And I don't blame folks that feel that way. But it's weird, like being a transplant in Memphis for a couple of years, it was like, I was like love struck. You would think that Memphis was like, I was 16 and Memphis was like a, like a hot girl that gave me <laughs> attention. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I love that. I want to stay here forever in your arms, even though it's not the most <laughs> healthy thing for me. Like Memphis is not the most healthy city for me, right? It's still a very Southern city. It's still ripe with a lot of racism. It is still very much like surrounded with a lot of conservative mindsets and things like that too which is like antithesis of me but for some it's just something about it that maybe it's the barbecue it might just be like they sprinkle a little bit of drugs in the barbecue i don't know um the culture the culture is super rich and it's just like i'll have this thing for the underdog you know like i pride myself in being an underdog fan and memphis is such an underdog city that I think that subliminally is why I'm like, I want Memphis to win so bad because Nashville is the city in Tennessee, mm-hmm. right? Like Nashville gets all the, like the, a lot of the funding. It gets a lot of the national attention. It's like the city that when people think I want to move to Tennessee, Nashville, right? Like I lived in Memphis for four years and still to this day, people would ask me, Oh, how's Nashville? And I'm like, I don't live in Nashville. <laughs> like there are more cities than Nashville and Tennessee. Get a map. Like Elvis was from there. He yeah. died there. Right? Well, he wasn't technically born there, but he like blew up there. Like we have Al Green. He was a reverend in the church there, right? Like it's such a culturally rich city, but it just gets sort of like looked over and glossed over because it's not the prettiest, sexiest city. Whereas like Nashville has become like that sexy city and, and the attention's there. So I think Memphis then became like, oh, well, we're the underdog and I'm rooting for us now. I want Memphis to win. So I love it. That makes perfect sense because I remember you and Mike at Starbucks always arguing about sports and yeah. you always talking about, or sometimes you would agree, but your perspective, even then was like, you'd like to take the underdog perspective. I just love those stories. man. It's more fun, isn't it? To it see is. people like rise up, overcome adversity and become victorious. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So how long did you guys live in that place where you like, didn't know what you were doing next? This whole, that situation was insane. Like May and June, July. It all just, it, it, it was like a it was like a slow train wreck every single day just piled on something more complicated because going into it we really had in our heads that we wanted to be in a couple of different places one was richmond one was um 
DC. The other was like in the Northeast somewhere. I believe it or not, Baltimore was on that list. Even though I've never been to Baltimore, I guess The Wire makes me want to live in Baltimore, which is ironic because I feel like people watch The Wire and they're like, Baltimore is shady. And I'm like, oh man, Baltimore sounds so cool. So, something about Maryland makes me think of Ed, Edgar Allan Poe. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's poetic. I like it. Yeah, poet, LOL, poetic. Um, and Philly. Because yeah. I love Philly a lot too and I love cheesesteaks. Oh yeah. And so those were all like on the list because Andrea's family's from Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm at this point, I was at this point in my life where like I've only been away from Louisville for four years and I've come home maybe like once a month i come all the time and for andrea she went to college in virginia she taught in new orleans and then moved to memphis so she had been away from her family for like seven years and when we were coming into this next phase i was like i respect that you probably want to be closer to family and not have to buy plane tickets Mm -hmm. we can move closer to your family it's fine let's 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 look at that idea and so that was sort of where we cast the net we were like all right it's either going to be richmond maybe dc maybe baltimore maybe philly that's it and so i applied to just those places we knew that we wanted to leave memphis begrudgingly it was hard harder for me i think but i was open to it and so chicago was never really on the radar for her she knew nothing about it, right? If you if you grow up in New York City, Chicago just seems like this really not great place. It's like, why the hell would I want to go to Chicago when I have New York City right here? Mm-hmm. So Chicago was always like this, nah. And there was this perception that it was really expensive. So she was like, why would I pay that money to live further away from my family when I could pay that money to live in Philly or right by my family? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. But when we looked at housing in Chicago, she was like, actually, it's pretty affordable and I could fly home for cheap. And I'm like, yeah, dog. And I was secretly like Midwest. <laughs> like, let's go Midwest. Because <laughs> I have I have a weird relationship with New York, New Jersey. New York, I, don't, I like hanging out there because it's funny to me. And the accents are hilarious. <laughs> and the culture is, is like this... It, it it I play so much on tropes, but it feels that way sometimes. If you are just a fly on the wall in Andrea's family's house, it is hilarious. I just sit and laugh in that house a lot. Meanwhile, Andrea's like stressed about something because it's actually her family and these are higher stakes for her. We're not married mm-hmm. yet, so it's not high stakes for me. Right. So when her dad sits on the couch and yells for everyone in the house like a typical New Jersey father, mm-hmm. I love it. I told her I look forward to it. When her mom, it has like, she has a super thick like Italian <laughs> accent. Whenever she like talks about coffee or like oh, yeah. bagels and like like all of those things. Like I love it. Like I sit there and I'm like, say that again. Because yeah. Because this is so fun. Yeah. And then I get to leave and go back to my like nest in the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'll hang out here while we do this. But I don't, I don't think I can handle these accents long term. <laughs> I, I don't think I could because they'll know I will clearly not be from that part of town mm-hmm. whereas like when I was in Memphis you wouldn't really know that I'm not from Memphis I sound like I'm from the south in yeah. a lot of ways and so Chicago being a midwestern place like you don't get as thick accents until you go like Wisconsin mm-hmm. or Minnesota in Chicago it's like a mix you know when you're talking to a Chicagoan you yeah. will hear it thick but Chicago is such a transplant city that most everyone we talk to, you could talk to them for two hours and think, man, how's Chicago? And they're like, I oh, don't know, man. I just moved here two weeks ago. And they're like, oh, shit, you're not even from here. <laughs> like, where are you from? And they're like, oh, man, I'm from, like, Texas. Like, yeah. What the fuck? It's not what I expected. A lot of those big cities are that way. New oh, yeah. York City, L.A. 
And it's weird. It's interesting because with COVID, a lot of those cities have been like just shedding population like crazy. Like wildfire. They really have. And New York, obviously, being one of those places. But uh, I don't know. I get why people were like, screw this. I'm out. This doesn't seem safe. But I don't know how much of that is like permanent. Right. I think there's things that you miss very quickly when you say you go from New York City, for example, and then you decide to move to, I don't know, like, let's say uh, Charlotte, North Carolina or something Mm -hmm. like that. Right. You miss those little things that you, I, I think sometimes if you're from New York, didn't realize how not existent they are in other places. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the subway system. Holy moly. The New York subway system is incredible. Yeah, it's the bomb. The public transit system is so, so phenomenal in New York City. And everywhere else you go, it's going to suck. You're gonna be like, how long does the bus take to get here? Thirty minutes? How long is my commute <laughs> to work? Two hours? Yeah. And it's five miles away? what yeah and it's like yeah man only new york city but you love so i get the vibe off you that you love living in a city i love cities because they're black okay. um, if that makes sense yeah and and usually the experience is like more akin to what i was used to growing up in the west end um because we were so close to downtown and you get a lot more of that grittiness and the houses are closer together and it just feels like there's so much more like you know your neighbor feeling in the city for me. But I wouldn't say that I'm like a midtown kind of person or like a old Louisville type of person. Like I like that the city's in the earshot away, but I don't think I could ever like live in a downtown like high rise because I think there's this weird gradient of like wealth that comes with being in a certain location downtown. Like West End is like, y'all are close, but like y'all are far enough away. (laughs) <laughs> and then when you're in like downtown Louisville, if you got like a loft downtown, it's like you're you're balling, yeah. right? You've paid for that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, ironically, you don't have a grocery store, but I guess in 2020, <laughs> you don't need a grocery store. You can just have all your grocery ship. Yeah, just Amazon it. They'll deliver it to you with a drone. Which is insane. Um, but I love the city. It's, I think that it, there's, yeah, just so much more energy, so much more buzz in the city. And you get to see so many more people more often than if you live say in like a rural spot or like further away it's like you like andrea's neighborhood has no sidewalks yeah it blows my mind you know why they don't have sidewalks because it wasn't designed for people to walk in the neighborhood yeah it was designed for you to stay your ass in your house yeah and your neighbors will drive over and come see you but you don't just casually walk in the neighborhood yeah you don't and that it's so weird to me that that little design feature was intentional, right? If they wanted it to be more like a community wherever you like walk to like a friend's house, they would have put sidewalks in. Yeah. But they chose not to. And that was an intentional choice, which has a impact on you as a kid. It kind of just subliminally says to you like, I'm not supposed to walk down the street because I have to walk in the street. Right. And so you don't. And so she didn't. Yeah. And it was always everyone would just drive over or come over. It was never a serendipitous like I'm playing with my next door neighbor because I walked down the street to their house. Well, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot is the way that we have slowly over time devalued community in our country. Mm. And, you know, like you hear a lot of people talking about it. They'll talk about how we have destroyed the American family. And that's how a lot Mm. of people talk about the destruction of community. But in reality, like humans... Dude, you have to have a team of people around you mm-hmm. who support you and love you and care for you and lift you up and, and make you better. So, and, But for some reason, in like the 80s and 90s, it may be earlier, I don't know, 
we started to shift away from valuing that. And I think a big part of it was because the economy got so strong that like you legitimately could like be a single person oh, who yeah. was balling and could support yourself by yourself completely or like even like some people were able to raise children completely by themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I won't make judgments about, you know, like how well they did or if they could have done better if they had had more support. But it's awesome that they were even able to do it in the first place before in human history you would never have been able to. Yeah. And it makes me it, it's it's even more evident to me now in COVID when the little bit of community that I do have still in my life, the semblance of community that I still have in my life was disrupted so dramatically. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It I I think it's it's interesting to think about the the family unit, right? Because we're only really a generation away from that. And it's going to be interesting to see like what it means for Gen Z folks as far as like what is family to them, what really sort of, because if they're growing up in a world where the family unit isn't as important or isn't as strong, then it's like, I don't necessarily see that as much. And so I can kind of really create whatever future I want, right? Mm -hmm. For you and I, I had both of my parents. It was a very nuclear family situation. And so subliminally throughout my entire life, I said, that's what I want to, mm-hmm. right? I was heavily influenced by that. And so the hope is I'll create that with my significant other and our kids. But so many of my friends and so many people I know my age, like that wasn't the case, right? They have like a single mom or they um, have like a, like a single father or like they're growing up now um, and, and folks my age are like, I want, I don't want kids. I don't want to be married. I just want to have money or have that dink life, that double income, double income, no kid life mm-hmm. to which in 2020 is like, you look at that on paper. I'm like, damn, that would be really fresh, man. I can really travel all, like whenever I want. Not only could I afford it, but I don't have to worry about what the hell to do with my kids. What a life, man. And I love cereal. So I don't even have to worry about my kid eating the last bowl of cereal because mm-hmm. he doesn't exist. So <laughs> so that actually sounds really attractive. And so I'm seeing more of that, which means that, one, if they do end up having a kid, you'll sort of grow up and it's like both of my parents are working. My yeah. mom works. My dad works, right? Andrea doesn't even need me, right? She's balling on her own. Yeah. If she broke up with me tomorrow, which I hope she doesn't. Don't like, I hope if she listens to this, she laughs at that and like, I would never. <laughs> um, she would be totally fine. She yeah. had her own job. She went yeah. to college. She would, and I would hopefully also be fine. Um, and so with that in mind, it's going to be fascinating to think about, well, what does that mean for Gen Z's who grow up with so many different mixed lifestyles and sort of like what they're capable of. So I'm like fascinated about the future. Yeah. But thinking back to the past and when that happened, I mean, the gender revolution, when women really entered to the workforce and stepped out of the house and they were like, well, I can get this shit on my own. I don't need a husband anymore to provide for me. Right. And when robots are now in vacuum cleaners, now men are like, well, I guess I don't need a wife to (laughs) vacuum my floor and the robot will do it. Um, <laughs> because there's always the trope that men couldn't like keep up with their houses if like women didn't do it. So I'm glad that we're past that point because I like the freedom of choice. But because of that, like you're saying, the community aspect is t- is totally different because I feel like now community is more of a choice. Yeah. Like if I want to make friends, I can make friends. Yeah. But they don't have to be in person. I could just make them on the internet and then I can be by myself. That's an interesting point. But I like kind of to go go more back on what you said about 
community is choice. And I think people see that more. So speaking kind of to like what you were saying, you were privileged enough to have your parents stay together. So was I, Mm. but I also had friends who didn't have their parents stay together. And in fact, um, saw a lot of hostility come from their parents. And so they didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have a lot of, um, they didn't put, put a lot of value in their parents, the relationship. And so they would say, you know, like my friends are my family. You guys are my brothers. Mm-hmm. You guys are my family. I'm mm-hmm. creating, I'm forging my own family and you're who I want it to be. Um, and that's an interesting concept, uh, but I, but not really. I think it's very similar to what we used to do in tribes. Like your tribe would be your brothers, your family, even if you were related to them and you probably were, but maybe not. Um, so that's really interesting. And now in this younger generation of people, I think we still see that a little bit, but we also see, an even greater, I don't want to say disregard because that almost sounds negative, but that is kind of what I mean. Like just a, a letting go of older norms and you see people like saying, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids or, and you even see people saying like, I just kind of want to have relationships drift in and out of relationships with people Mm -hmm. as my life changes. And as I change And, and, you know, there's a lot of, leeway in what a partner is and how many partners you have at the same time and and how you live your life. And I think that that's fine. I don't have a problem with that at all. But it's interesting because where does it take humanity? In what direction does that type of ideology take humanity? I don't know. I just think it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, and this is like, right, this is like my wheelhouse in sociology and what has me fascinated is this idea of like, how do we maintain community? How do we maintain bonds? Well, that just sounded really Southern right there. Maintain. Maintain bonds. <laughs> How do we maintain bonds? How do we maintain bonds together in a world that is progressively like one shifting the idea of like- Decentralizing? Yeah, decentralizing essentially. And and that happens in a lot of ways. One being the internet and technology, making it a lot easier for me to never have to leave my house or I can completely build an online life and I ne- and I don't have to like build any bonds with my neighbors. It doesn't matter where I live in the world if if I don't leave. So like my thing is like, what does that do? What's the impact of that? And my fear is that that makes us less empathetic to one another and less worried about what happens to the other because we get so it's so easy to not think about what happens to the people on the other side of the tracks. Right. I don't have to think about those people if I don't have to interact with those people. I get to like stay in my bubble over here and it sucks what's going on over there, but I don't have the context. So it's fine. And so for me, my big fascination with sociology when I got this master's was how can cities, because I'm a huge city fan, as we talked about, how can cities work better to bring people together in meaningful ways? so that we can continue to stay anchored to who is in our community, right? So for example, if I live on the East End of Louisville, what we saw for so long in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s is that we built up out further. We kept stretching Louisville. We kept stretching out further and further, right? Like now there's outlets in like Simpsonville, right? So that means what's gonna happen in the same way that when we built malls, you build housing because you have the convenience of the mall there, it's gonna attract people to wanna live out there. So next thing you know, you see Norton Commons, you see so many 
housing options explode further east and it's like we're stretching and trying to get it further away from each other and sort of escape the problems quote unquote with groups that are less desirable to us are from the city but that makes it so much harder to maintain community because now if i'm like all right i am going to hold a community event and i want the whole community to come together where do you put that event where do you hold that event you if you hold it downtown it's a long commute for people who live in simpsonville not so much for the people that live in the West End, but here's the double-edged sword. I might be close if I live in the West End, but if I don't feel comfortable in this event or I don't feel like it's like geared to where it's not accessible to me, I'm not even going to come to it. So here I'm spending this money on this community event. No one's showing up to it because either A, the people way out don't want to come in or B, the people that are close don't feel welcome. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about that constantly. Like how can cities be better about building up the core or at least like at least by like pulling people back in and saying like hey come back stop flying stop flying away and going way out like come back here yeah and and, and be in community with your brothers and sisters regardless of the color of the skin or regardless of their income i i love that idea i think you have to do that because i don't think cities are going away i think no. you know cities are going to be here forever mm-hmm. and they're going to grow but I understand why you would flee a city because I do think the challenges of maintaining a healthy community in a city are harder because there are more people. And so more mm-hmm. variables create bigger challenges. Uh, that is interesting, though, uh, the idea of like how do you build community in cities like sports, I think, is a big part of that. Sports is huge. I just watched um, The Last Dance. Oh, so good. dude it was phenomenal it's so good it's even more visceral when you live oh. a mile away from the united center yeah I, li- I can see the united center almost from my house man so did you watch that while you were living in chicago we started it when we moved to chicago oh. and i was like this is so for halloween andrea is gonna be steve kerr and i'm gonna be dennis rodman <laughs> i just ordered jerseys so <laughs> i'm really excited yes. to paint my hair and she got herself like a blonde wig. So <laughs> we're really living into this last dance. You know, it was wonderful because I'm not a huge sports fan. And I saw the whole, you know, 90s Bulls phenomenon take place in front of me. But I didn't have a lot of context for it. My dad wasn't a sports fan really either. Mm-hmm. So I just didn't really see it happen. I just saw my friends experiencing it and stuff. But I remember seeing it in the media and I remember having a really negative opinion of Dennis Rodman. Because (laughs) I think everyone did. But that's just how he was, you know, that's how he was depicted as like this bad boy. But then you see him in the documentary and he's a super likable guy. He's the the most normal athlete I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, he's he just wanted to party. Exactly. He didn't give a shit about basketball. (laughs) Well, I disagree, dude. I think he cared a lot about basketball. He loved basketball. Because you heard even Michael Jordan was saying and he was like they always forgot, but when it came down to practicing games, Dennis, Dennis, Dennis was would there. show up. Well, when I say he, he didn't give a shit, I don't mean like he didn't care about playing the game. I just mean that he didn't take it so serious. Yeah, he didn't take himself he, seriously. Yeah, he, it didn't like consume his life yeah. where he felt like the only way I get better is if I'm inside of this um, practice facility at 4 a.m. and I don't leave until the sun goes down yeah that wasn't i don't feel like that was dennis Rodman. whereas like i feel like a lot of athletes that's the way they feel like the only way i get better is if i just dedicate every waking moment of my life to this game and dennis Rodman's like i have to separate my own life from this game when you need me i'll be here yeah but if i need to if i need to get better that means that my ass needs to go to vegas and just drink and party for a week 
And then I'm like, <sighs> well, one thing that I really appreciated about the whole documentary was, and I guess you would expect this from a professional athlete who's had years of experience like that, but they're all very thoughtful men and they all had really interesting stories to tell. And one thing that was very clear about Dennis Rodman earlier was he was a very intelligent man. And I think he just knew what he wanted from his life and he knew basketball could get it for him. So he knew I got to be ready to go on the court. And I also think Dennis Rodman, listening to him talk, I think he loved Michael Jordan. Yeah. I think he just loved the man and appreciated the man and the opportunities that he gave him. And so he was like, I just want to be here and show up and make my teammates proud and be a part of this team. But he's definitely a wild card for he's sure. Such a wild, I feel like Dennis Rodman sometimes is like a child that was suspended in in his brain because I feel like he did things that when I was like 12 years old would have been like super cool to me, like being on wrestling, right? Mm -hmm. Like I watched WWE and I'm like, oh, it would be so cool if they gave me my own entrance music and I got to walk out into the ring and like body slam Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> like it would be so cool, but it'll never happen. I'm never actually going to be able to do that. And then Dennis Rodman starts playing basketball and he's like, actually, <laughs> I can do that because I'm rich and I'm Dennis Rodman and people are going to want me to be there. Right. It's like I can like date a supermodel and live it up in Vegas and party. It's like it, it, it's like like you're saying, I think he's smart. He knew he wanted to live out like this dream because he went to like a small school, grew up in kind of like a small area. So growing up not really having shit makes you have a strong imagination because you kind of have to because that gives you hope. And he's like, all right, I got this crazy imagination. One day I'll have like crazy hair and I'll like, like get my nose pierced and all this sort of stuff, get tattoos. And he's like, oh shit, I can do this now. So I'm going to do it. But I'm also good at basketball. So I still have to show up. Like this is still my job. This is still my livelihood. Mm -hmm. And I still really care about this. So I'll still show up. But I also get to party with supermodels. Pretty cool life. So, <laughs> but the thing about that, and it ties us back into our actual conversation. The thing about that documentary that was so clear to me was like, Michael Jordan was doing a lot of what he was doing for himself, mm -hmm. but a lot of what he was doing was for the city of Chicago. I felt like he had a genuine Man. love for the city of Chicago. Put it on his back. And he really did, yeah. When you watch the documentary, you realize when he joined that team, that it was, an, it was an, a nothing team, and over the course of like 20 years, he turned them into like a dynasty. Mm -hmm. So is that still present in the city of Chicago now as you experience it? Like, in a way, yeah. Yeah. In a way, I think that you will always have this heyday of that was Chicago in the 90s. Because uh, at the same time that Chicago was going through what it was going through, because there have always been lingering issues in Chicago. Chicago is also incredibly corrupt of a city. There's been a lot of corruption across the board, education, um, healthcare, energy, all that. It's a corrupt city, super corrupt. And they, it's almost as like, the whole city was able to just like put blinders up to like the problems that were going on because Michael Jordan was a bull and he was taking over the world and they were the best team in the entire world, right? It's like we could all rally around the bulls, whether you're from the south side, the west side, the north side, you rallied around the bulls because I think at the same time, so many of the other teams were just like, eh, but the bulls, man. And there was so much loyalty to Jordan that I love that you don't really see a whole lot anymore from athletes, especially basketball players, like maybe LeBron with Cleveland, but so many of the team players now it's like, yeah, I don't really care about like the city I'm playing for. I'm want to play with this player. So I'll go here and play.
that's that individualism we're talking about. It's oh, yeah. less about the community. It's less about the team. It's more about you as a player. Exactly. It's weird. I can get this money because yeah. they're going to pay me this crazy contract. Or I get a ring because I really want a championship. But I'm not necessarily doing it for this community, right? I'm not just staying in Oklahoma City and winning a championship for the Oklahoma City Thunder. If it's not going to work here, peace. I'll go to L.A. You know what else I think sports provides for a big city? War. War is a big part of the human experience. For the entire time humans have been on this planet, they've lived in small tribes, and they've gone to war with other tribes. And in the 80s and 90s, -hmm. the tribe of Chicago (laughs) got on Michael Jordan's back and went to war with those motherfucking Indianapolis Pacers. You know, And they took those motherfuckers and they (laughs) won that war. I never thought about it that way. And the Pacers were defeated and they were like, we got to build up our fucking army. And it unites people in the same way that that warriors would unite people in the past. It's it's the same thing. Damn, I guess you're right. It's less bloody, I guess. It's way less bloody. We're doing a way better <laughs> job of it now. I mean, we still fight war, but for for some of the same reasons, but it's split off into one part of it. Part of the reason we used to fight war was to build community. Now that's sports. Part of the reason we used to fight war was to steal resources. Now that's still... Big <laughs> that's an actual real world. That's crazy. Like we're war. still killing people yeah, for that. Exactly. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like. It. Could you imagine if we were like trying to like <laughs> go to war for oil and we show up with a basketball and we're like, let's go. The first one in twenty one gets this oil. Three on three. Let's <laughs> go. Know, like we're gonna bring our best athletes, and America's and like, oh, we, we got this. And then we win, and they're just like, all right, <laughs> are you won? It's yours. How can we help? How can we help you get it? <laughs> Golly, there would be a lot of foul calls that game. Goodness gracious. <laughs> I'm oh, interested yeah. in your interest in basketball. Where did it come from? Is it just being a kid and just being interested in sports, I guess? Because one thing I remember about you a ton is like you and Mike Higdon talking about basketball. Was that just something that you and he had in common? So that's what y'all talked about? Well, me, so for the record, me and Mike Higdon do still talk about basketball too, which I love. I talk to Mike pretty frequently, especially on Instagram. He nice. might come to Chicago. <sighs> he wants to move to Chicago. And I'm like, bro. He told me he was coming back to the motherland. He sent like, me a text message the other day. Come on back, dog. I got you. I was like, I will find you a place to live. I will I will seek it out for you. If you tell me the neighborhood and give me an address, I will go to that place. I will tour it for you. And that's how much I would love for you to come back to Chicago and be like closer. Because I just, I, I love him so much. I love him dearly. Um, if Yeah, you- so basketball. It's funny you say that because last night I had dinner with my folks and my mom was annoyed because me and my dad were just talking about basketball the whole time. And she's like, <laughs> They are just talking about sports, whatever. And I'm like, Mom, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's stop talking about about basketball. Um, I really think it was for me. I think one is like a black kid. You really are like enamored by black success. So, we, how do you see it most often? Especially coming from low income areas, like you see it on TV. I see it in football players, basketball players, not really baseball players. I guess Barry Bonds. Shouts to Barry Bonds before shit went south for Barry Bonds. He has a big head. There's a reason he has a big head. That's not natural. Um, <laughs> but basketball, yeah, was that. And then Ben Wallace, man. Ben Wallace was my ultimate aspiration, which is why I am a Pistons fan okay. to this day, is because I had an afro in like the eighth grade. And then I saw Ben Wallace, and he also had an afro nice. for the Detroit Pistons. And I was like, that's me. I want to be that. So I like basketball. So I can watch him like run around the court with this big afro and dunk on people. And that'll be me one day. And I don't have an afro any longer. And I also never dunked on a single soul. So <laughs> not quite me, but you know, a kid can dream. 
So you're a Pistons fan. Love them. In Chicago. It's interesting because there's a lot of hatred between yeah. those two. It is. But luckily, it's not that palpable because I feel like Chicago, because the Bulls are terrible. The Bulls have been trashed for the last like decade. Minus Derrick Rose, who was great, who went to Memphis. Um, they've been terrible. So the focus isn't really on basketball anymore. It's really about baseball because there's always been this big lingering baseball culture in Chicago, especially White Sox versus Cubs, North Side, Cubs, South Side, Chicago, White Sox. And so that's what you see more of. You don't really see basketball. So I feel like in the 90s, if I wore a Pistons hat, I probably would have got cussed out <laughs> because they hated the Pistons. Rightfully so. The Pistons were literally body slamming them during you basketball games. You were a person from the other tribe, just I walking around the streets of their strutting, tribe. Strutting like a rooster. Wearing the other tribe's headdress. Wearing the full regalia. You yep. were lucky you didn't get murdered. Uh, exactly. So <laughs> in the 90s. A maybe, thousand years ago, you definitely would have gotten murdered. They definitely would have like, sh- like destroyed me if I had walked around with that gear on. But now they don't. So it's not a, it's not a huge deal. But yeah, we've come a long way we, well arguably we got a long, long way, way to go got a long way to go got a long way to go got a long way to go, got a long way to go. Yeah. i don't know i've also lived a life where i've rooted for the the wrong team and <laughs> i don't know why i do that i just do that like right like growing up in louisville kentucky fan yeah. which in louisville they might murder you for being a kentucky fan outside of a football game or a basketball game it gets heated um maybe not now but anyway and then moving to memphis following graduating from louisville and wearing louisville gear and even being a kentucky fan in memphis memphis and kentucky do not get along because yeah. of John calipari and so here i am strutting my kentucky stuff in the middle of memphis not cool and now i live in chicago strutting my detroit Pistons stuff in chicago bulls land not cool <laughs> i don't know how it ended up that way but somehow i end up rooting for the wrong team the adversity makes you stronger i hope so <laughs> If you end up living with Mike Higdon, that would be sick. I'm going to be so jealous of you. You can come anytime if I lived with Mike Higdon. Mm. It might be odd if he's still in a relationship and with child, but... I don't think it would be. He's just a cool guy. He is a cool guy. Honestly, he would probably be like, yeah, that's fine, man, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. Mike, I'm going to move into your kitchen. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's fine. I was actually... Th- I said with Mike Higdon, but I was thinking just like near Mike I know. Higdon. <laughs> no, what you still. Mean, I'm just playing. Still. Yeah, it would be sick. It would be really sick to. It's always cool when you can like take different <laughs> chapters of your life and combine them together in one spot. And I'm getting a little bit of that now in Chicago because some of my friends from Memphis have moved to Chicago recently. And so now I'm making like Chicago friends as an adult, which making friends as an adult is such a weird thing. And I'm also like connecting that. So in my building, the people on the third floor are from Chicago. We have become friends with them which is great but now one of my best friends from memphis moved in on the second story yeah and so now they're connecting and it's like i'm watching two chapters of my life come together and i'm like this is so freaking cool and now i'm just like man who else wants to come here mike higdon from the louisville (sighs) chapter come on down mike higdon not only will you be here but you can hang out with my memphis friends and my chicago friends and we're all together in this really cool thing that would be sick so I want him to move really badly, but I also want to go to Portland very badly. So I need him to just stay there until I can get there. I don't want to go to Portland right now. I want Not th- right now. I want things to chill out over there. Once upon a time when it was just donuts and creepy stuff, mm-hmm. now it's, you can get killed. The first time I ever went to Portland, 
and this is a true story, Brian. I believe it. Okay. Before you even say it. We got off the plane, out of the airport, into a Uber. Or no, that's not actually what it was. We rented a car. We rented a car. We had to park a little bit away from our hotel, and then we had to walk down to our hotel. And we're walking like two blocks. I'd never seen more homeless people than I saw in my entire life. Really? So many homeless people. Because it's just so nice and temperate there, and it's a comfortable place to be. You can live outside most of the time and be comfortable. Mm. If you got a light blanket, you can sleep on the streets through the night. I mean, but there were just everywhere you looked homeless people. And there was a man just carrying a huge knife, huge knife. And like, I just, and I'm six, seven feet from him. And I just, and I'm looking at him the whole time. I'm maintaining eye contact with him. Like, I see that you have this knife. And he just walks away from me. But I'm like, man, that was the most surreal and intense experience I've ever had. And it's been in my first like hour in Portland. But it was a beautiful city. And I had a blast (laughs) while I was there. Other than knife toting random homeless people. Nice city. That man, I mean, he probably had some type of mental illness. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to hold anything against him. He made me feel unsafe. But I mean, there were dozens of people around. Dozens of people around. So I felt like, okay, I don't think this guy's about to do anything crazy because everybody in this whole place is going to see this. Right. And like, you know, a lot of them were homeless people, but a lot of them were just also people who lived in Portland or who were tourists. Right. And so I was like, I don't think I'm about to get stabbed, but this dude just has a big ass knife out in the open in the middle of the street. <laughs> it was an interesting experience. So like, it's not hard for me to imagine an unrest in that area escalating to the point that it has there because there's just so many people there who are maybe suffering some instability. Yeah, and who are feeling disenfranchised and stuff. Mm. Yeah, I do love the Pacific Northwest. Beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's just a totally different way of life over there. They're so chill. Um, But I haven't been to Portland, but I have been to Seattle. And the homeless population in Seattle is also very alarming. And the difference with the homeless folks that I experienced um, in Seattle compared to say the homeless folks here in Louisville is that the folks in Seattle were very much like animated and they were very persistent and they were very like, they weren't, they, they would like come up to you and ask you for money. And it wouldn't be a, all right, cool. Never, you know, like go on about your day. It would be like, Hey man, I'll do this for you. Or like, Hey, you want to hear a joke? Um, I'll tell you a joke for a dollar sort of situation in Seattle. And it happened so frequently. We stayed in a hostel downtown in Seattle and literally just aligned on the street or like boxes, tents, homeless folks. Yeah. Like, as far as the eye could see downtown. DC's like that too. And it just, it's it's jarring and it's, and it's so upsetting because I'm not mad at them. I'm just upset that we don't have the social support for, for, for them in the yeah. way that we should. These, these are people that... There's this there's this American dream, this American system that's been put into place that's supposed to look out for all human beings, and these are ev- ev- this is evidence of human beings who are n- not being looked out for. And it's easy to find reasons to blame those people, but it's like, okay, their challenges, they their experiences have led them to make the decisions they've made. Mm-hmm. Do we just want to throw them, cast them away, or do we want to actually? live up to the ideal that is the this America that we think that we've fallen so short of achieving, it seems. 
that says we want to provide life, liberty, and the ability to pursue happiness to all human beings. And these people who are living on these tents, whether you believe this or not, they don't have the ability to pursue happiness. It's not available to them in any way. No. Yeah. And I think that that's the crossroads that we have been out for a long time, but we are still currently at is like that humanity aspect of like taking care of a human being, right? You see that they're suffering. You see that they are without and you're like, we like morally, I should help that individual, right? We're, we're, we're at that, but we're also at the place of, well, financially, we can't really support these programs that are going to help homeless folks or folks experiencing homelessness. It's, it's like easier if we just sort of continue to fund police or fund, you know, these other sort of places and not really work on that. But there's just such this long term benefit of humanity about taking care of folks that are experiencing homelessness and also an economic incentive that if you pay the money up front, you see more benefits as a city. And that's the part that's like frustrating to me is like you would actually benefit if you help those people out. If you gave them housing, right? And allowed them to have that ownership to take care of a house and also an address so they could apply for a job. If you gave, if you give them those resources, you will get that return back on investment, right? They'll invest back into that community because now they have economic spending power to spend back into your community, but without any of that spending power, it's like you will always spend more money band-aiding the problem, right? Because you're always going to have to dispatch officers to move homeless people out of the way. Or you'll always have like people that are like, oh, well, I don't want to live in this part of the city because there's too many homeless people around. Or, you you know, you have folks ODing, which unfortunately with homelessness and, and drug addiction, alcohol addiction, you have to spend more on your healthcare infrastructure constantly um, taking homeless folks in and like giving them treatment and inevitably just sending them back to do the same thing and come back in again. So it's like you're you're spending more money band-aiding it. It would honestly make more sense if you paid that money up front to help give them the social structure and then you'll see that return on investment. So, you know, it, it, it's frustrating because there is this also humanity piece to it. Like, why aren't we doing these things? So I don't know. If you can't tell already, uh, I'm not a politics person. I don't think I'd ever want to run for office, but there are many times that I think to myself, someone someday is going to like force my hand and make me do it <laughs> because I can, com- I'm a voter so I can complain mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll complain about it all day. And I know that I should do something bigger about it, but I'm like, man, politics are so annoying. They are. Anyway. And I think it's cause they're mostly broken and corrupted by money and geez Louise and all kinds of other stuff. Um, so, you know, you, you talk about all these, uh, you talk about the, the financial incentives and, you know, I, I believe you, I, I want to see like a really hard, like hashed out plan so you can really understand it better because things are so subtle and so nuanced. So who knows really what's going to actually turn out to happen. I really hope that as we move forward, we learn that valuing these people more and helping them and trying to prop them up really brings more back to the community. And I do suspect that we'll find that that's true. And it it's actually comes from a weird place, which is the Bible. So I'm not religious. I don't know if we've really talked about this. At all. We haven't explored that a whole lot. No. You've talked about, you mentioned it, I think, yeah. the last time that I was here. And I was like, hmm, I don't know that. We, we really haven't talked about that topic very much. No. And uh, so, but let me let me frame it so that I make sure we don't get way too far off topic. Okay. But I will try to answer your question for sure. So, 
when I think, so homelessness and just disenfranchised people in general, they are very clearly suffering. And for the most part, the systems that we have in place to provide for them to try to ease their suffering is inadequate. And there's a lot of reasons why. And it has to do with the structure of our country and how basically how money is dispersed through markets. I mean, capitalism is a big part of it. I'm a big capitalist, but capitalism, we talked about this the other day, tends to neglect entities that are not producing capital. Mm. And if that's just a company and the company dies, it's unfortunate for the person who owns the company. But when that's a person and the person is suffering and dying, that's a different question. Mm. Right? So I think we should definitely try to help those people who need it the most. And I think that's a story that we receive from ancient humans in a lot of different tales, but specifically the one that pops into my mind because it's the one I'm most familiar with is the Bible. I mean, how often in the Bible do you hear the narrative like the meek will inherit the earth, the blessed are the meek, the the weakest of us are blessed, take care of them. Mm -hmm. And I think basically what that message is telling us is that if you lift up the least of us, we make what it means to be a human more. Now, it's hard to do and and to build it into a system. It seems really, really challenging and we've been trying to do it and we haven't done a good job of it and it's challenging. But to take that to like my own spirituality and what's happened with that, uh, I don't know. I was really interested in Christianity a lot when I was younger. It appealed to me. I learned a lot of lessons from it. I kept exploring and ultimately have decided you know, earlier I said I'm not religious. I'm That's not true. I'm probably still kind of religious about some stuff. But I'm just not a Christian. I'm not a Christian anymore. Okay. I've just moved on. I'm looking for new answers for what those those big questions, like what we are, where we come from, what we're made of. And I get a lot of those answers from, like, science. But then science fails to really explain consciousness. And so then the question becomes, what is that? But, um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, but I still love church. I still love going to the same church that I was going to because I've also learned the value of religion and what it brings to humans and what it does for us and the community it builds around us and the way it instills values in us that make us better and are easy for us to understand while we're also focusing on other aspects of our life that require more of our attention. And I would never want to take that away from anybody. And in fact, I want to contribute to it because I want to have make the people around me's life better and I want them to make my life better as well. Mm. So what was like the aha moment? Like, was there like a day that you just woke up one day and you're like, actually, this isn't the answer? No. It was like an aha era. Okay. Like a time period that like progressively. A long time period. "Hmm." And I'm still wrestling with that. I'm still thinking about it regularly. Like, what do I think? Sometimes I like to think about like the whole Elon Musk idea or it's not his idea, but I think he's made it famous by saying that he believes it, that we live in a simulation. Like as we grow closer to actually existing in a reality where we are able to simulate reality. I mean, it's really cool now, but it's obviously fake. But who knows in 50 years where it'll be. It might be you can't even tell 
it's not real. And once you get to that point, you have the, the you have to ask yourself the question: Are we the first civilization to create artificial realities, or has it happened before? And now we're just a part of one of the infinite artificial realities that is sprung out of the first reality. And either way, it doesn't matter. So, who cares? But that's what Elon Musk talks about. But then also you can get into like some mystic stuff and you can listen to the Buddhists and how they talk about energy. And um, some of the stuff that you get from Buddhism is pretty woo. And I don't want to buy into it because I don't think it's real. But some of it seems pretty legit, especially stuff about mindfulness and mm-hmm. focusing and staying uh, in the moment and paying attention to what's going on around you. That stuff seems pretty legit. So I've tried to learn a little bit more about that. But... Mm. I don't know. Sarah tells me I need to stop thinking about it so much. She's like, who gives a shit? <laughs> that sounds like a partner. She's just kind of like, pick something to believe All right. and start working yeah. and investing in it. I'm like, I don't want to. I want to learn more. Because right. I'm sure more. she loves having these conversations, but she's also some days probably like, talk about whether or not this is a real dimension. <laughs> she's, like, she's probably like, some days she's like, I just want to go to work. <laughs> yeah. And she's a Christian. And right. so, like, and so is her family. All right. And so, uh, but she's super patient with me for some reason. She just does not. That's love, man. It's not important to her that I agree with what she thinks. Right. I just had this vision in my head where like Sarah like calls you and she's like, hey, Mitch, where do you want to get dinner? And you're like, is dinner even real? <laughs> do you really have appetites? Dude. <laughs> she's like, all I did was ask you what you want for dinner. We don't have to do this right now. Yeah, that's never going to happen because I know my <laughs> appetite is real. My appetite is always real. <laughs> Just this vision of my head that that's a conversation. Just like knowing you, and I love that because there's always like, like you always prompt me to think, and you always like challenge. Like it's not always about like you agreeing with what I believe or like what I think about like anything. I think sometimes like you'll take it and you'll mold on, and you're like, yeah, I actually agree with that. But then there's things that like you're like, no, nah, like I disagree with you, and these are my arguments, and I respect that because I need that. Um, but I think then the downfall, and I tell this to Andrea too, <laughs> is like once me and Mitch start talking. Go to bed because it's going to be two hours, yeah. two, three hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's every time. Well, you do that same thing to me. And that's why I love talking to you more than anything because you challenge me. But also, like, I trust you completely. Please. And I know that um, I can go to difficult places and even express controversial things that I'm thinking about and, like, mulling around in my mindset and, like, in my thought process. I'm trying to un- understand better or whatever. And you're going to know that I love you, so it's like I'm not trying to hurt you in any way. I'm just trying to learn more, and it's safe, right? and it's fun. Right. And so, I mean, like, these types of conversations, I think, used to happen so much more often when people lived in the same places, mm-hmm. or like, I, I love to think about ancient humans. Some, something about ancient humans fascinates me, because I think it's the way they lived is the closest to what truly makes humans happy and thriving. Small groups, everybody in the group is the best at something, and gotcha. you are kind of all related. You, the, the ladies all work together to raise the kids, and so do the guys. And you know, like whoever's good at hunting goes out and goes hunting, whoever's good at like trapping does trapping. Everybody just works towards a little thing, and you're all investing towards the greater good, which is the group. Right. As long as you've got your role in the group, you have purpose. You have people around you supporting you because you bring that to the group. And so you they value you. You value them. Mm. 
You know, they you're allowed to be who you are because they want you there. So they'll put up with the parts of you that are down downsides, but also they're there to challenge you and make you better when that part needs to change. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they, they, it's all that it all serves the purpose. Mm-hmm. Of of helping hone and make human beings better and more empathetic and more capable of loving one another. But the downside to that is when you get another group nearby, it's conflict. Mm-hmm. It's challenging. So I don't know, but but I, I when I think back to our relationship, you're definitely a person who's in my tribe, like for sure. I just Same. feel of you that way, and so I wish so much that. I could get everybody close. That would be sick. So, like, if you end up with Mike in Chicago, I'm going to be jealous. Come Elena through. and uh, Erica are closer now. They're yeah, in. so she moved back to Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, moved to Cincinnati, back to the area. And yeah. It's like, whoa. Talk yeah. about a transition. Yeah. And, you know, this brought something up that I was thinking about, because, you know, Sarah and I obviously have differing opinions on our faith. And is that true also about... You and Andrea? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and is that challenging your relationship or is it just a part of it? I think it's easy to say that it's not yet until we have kids. I think that is when it's really going to be, the conversations are going to have to go a lot deeper and there will be some disagreements. So I think it's it's not so difficult now because we all we each have our own independent faith and it's easy to like honor each other's decisions, right? Like Yom Kippur is coming up. Um, and Ro- or not Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, excuse me. She's going to hate me for that. Rosh Hashanah is coming up. Um, and, you know, last year, in the last couple of years, I've gotten really in like understanding and like more in- involved with Judaism, but I will never ascribe to Judaism. Like I, I, I won't do it. And, but the thing is like, it's easy for me to respect it. Like I'll sit in at the holidays, like I'll learn more about it because I love her and I want to support her. And so whenever we're like going to like a event, I will like a Passover or something like that. I'm like, yeah, I'll do the Seder with you. Like I want to learn, like I'll do the prayers for sure. Um, But I'm going to maintain my own faith. And the same thing where like I'll watch sermons on Sunday and she's never like, like you have to go somewhere and watch a sermon or like you have to leave and go to church on Sunday. It's stupid. I'm like, why do you have to go to church? It's never been that way. It's always been like, okay, like Brian will be at church for you know a couple hours and then we'll hang out afterward and that's not been there's never been any conflict and so it's easy now but i think having kids she wants to raise kids jewish i am of the belief that you can raise a kid however you want to raise them ultimately they have the decision they will decide what they believe in and so that even just that comment alone is like a point of contention between (laughs) us because she's like what do you mean and I'm like, I'm not saying that I don't want you to like bat mitzvah them or bar mitzvah them. Like, that's fine. We can have bar mitzvahs for my kid. Like, I'm not the type of person that it baptizes a, a baby. If you're listening to this and that's your thing, do your thing. I think it doesn't make sense to me. I didn't know who the hell Jesus was until I was like 16 when I got baptized. And I was like, oh, that's who he is. Six-month-year-old me just needed a titty to suck on. <laughs> that's all I needed. That's what 31-year-old me needs. Well, that too. <laughs> that is, I mean, 28-year-old me also needs that too, but six-month-year-old me is like, I need that to survive. I don't think I need that to survive now. I just enjoy it. So six like, so I, I would never want to baptize our kids at a young age. 
But ultimately, let's say that they get Mar Mitzvah, they go through the faith of Judaism, but then, you know, they're 18 and they sort of are on their own and they're independent. And then they come back and they're like, I don't believe in Judaism anymore. I believe in X. And even if it's not Christianity, if they came back and they're like, I am um, just a spiritualist or I am Buddhist or, you know, Sikh, whatever, I'm going to love my kid regardless. And I'm going to like pray for their soul and hope that I'm reunited with them. But ultimately, shoving any type of religion down any kid's throat is going to have an impact. Um, and so it hasn't hit ahead much because the stakes don't feel that high on us believing what we believe, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But Judaism is cool, man. Yeah. There's some cool things about Judaism that's like fascinating because it's a lot more religious, in my opinion, than Baptist, like being Baptist is. Yeah. Because to me, it's like there are things that I think we should do, like tithe and fast and um, be in like corporate worship. But not doing those things doesn't make me feel any type of way, right? I haven't stepped foot in a church building since February. Do I feel less faithful? Do I feel like God loves me? No, I feel fine. Right. But for Judaism, it's like whenever a holiday occurs, there are like some deep rituals that it's like you have to do. There's no negotiation Mm -hmm. to those. When Christmas comes around, do I need to go to church? No, and I feel like I'm fine. But if it's Hanukkah and we ain't lighting candles, nah. Yeah. The whole family's angry. Yeah. And we're 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 like flipping tables. You better like those damn candles. Yeah. So it's Well, I cool. wonder I wonder if like that also just has to do with their the culture of their family in particular and how seriously they take the traditions as opposed to other Jewish people who maybe don't take them as seriously. But no, I'm I'm super interested in Judaism just because all of it's all of it's interesting. All of the different Okay, so I think this is why you probably appreciate the rituals is because you learn from them. Mm -hmm. They're they're there for a reason. Oh, yeah. They bring value to the lives of these people who participate in Mm -hmm. them, right? And you have them too. So I'm going to psychoanalyze a little bit of what you just talked about and forgive me for any of my biases that I apply to any of the conclusions that I draw. But I think it's interesting that you appreciate the, the Jewish experience so much. And I think it's interesting that you she appreciates the Christian experience so much. I think you both probably are learning from each individual experience and there's value that comes from it and you love each other. So of course you're going to tr- try to invest in each other's way of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that the challenging part and maybe the reason why that is more of a point of contention for you guys is because it's also a part of your identity though. Mm-hmm. And so like if you were to become Jewish, It'd basically be like you were leaving behind all of these other people whom it'd be like you were switching tribes. Mm, Yeah. And you don't want to switch tribes. You love your tribe. Mm -hmm. And same thing for her, I guess, probably. Mm -hmm. Very similar. And I think that's probably why a lot of, and this is really me, like applying my own perspective to things, so forgive me. But like a lot of the rituals in Judaism are so meaningful. It's because you do them together. Right. Very familiar. And it builds the community. community. It's the thing you all do together. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Yeah. And there's definitely a community, huge community tie and a huge familial tie to it. She is deeply into her faith because of how she was raised. Her dad is Jewish. Her mom is actually Catholic, which is kind of That's interesting because I thought like the way that Judaism worked was if your mom was Jewish, you're Jewish. Jewish. Well, that well, the interesting thing is like how hard it was for her mom 
with her dad's family because her dad's family is very deeply Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, his mom and dad, he is his brothers, his sister, um, his, you know, so like he always wanted to raise his kids Jewish and her mom was never raised Jewish, was raised um, Greek Orthodox. And she really went above and beyond, I think, to try, one, to build a better relationship with his family, but two, to honor her husband because she literally, like, volunteered and helped teach at the Jewish day school. Mm. Not in, But never went through the process of formally becoming Jewish. It's hard to do, man. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah, it's, it's super very, hard. It's, it's not yeah. something you could... It's like Christianity, I feel like, is like pretty simple to become a Christian, right? Like you profess your faith in God and you get baptized and it's like, all right, you're good, right? Yeah. Like no one's going to question that. Very inclusive. Right, it's very... Yeah, but for Judaism, it's like you have to go through these almost like rites and these sort of like steps and then it's such a big cultural piece is like you are adopting this very insular culture mm-hmm. that it's going to take a long time for you to gain that almost like that um, bond with. Yeah. Whereas like Christianity, it's like you step into a church, everybody like, come on in. Yeah. Right. Like we want you to join our tribe. Yeah. Like, and Judaism's like, we are the chosen ones. We ain't letting you through that door unless we know because you about to join the chosen few up yeah. in here so you can stay outside. <laughs> Well, so, what it feels like. so look, so like, think about it like this though. So you just said as a Christian, you feel comfortable not attending church. Right. Because you have an individual connection to God. Mm-hmm. There's an individual aspect to Christianity that I don't think exists in Judaism. And I'm not Jewish, so I'm just like observing from the outside. So obviously I, my statements can be incorrect, but, um, you, and you just said how important the, the practices were at least in Andrea's family, mm-hmm. you know, that might just be because her family takes it really seriously and they care about it a lot or, and it also could be because they're really trying to build community. And so like there is that, that insular aspect of Judaism is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. You either are born into it or it's hard to get in. Exactly. Yeah. That's the thing about Judaism. It's like you are raised Jewish. If you're not raised Jewish, you don't like really convert to Judaism. It doesn't really happen. And this is what I think it is. I think in that culture of people, they think of themselves as being a part of a tribe that has existed for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to think of yourself that way as a Christian. You know, you don't think of yourself that way. It's not new anymore, but especially at the beginning, it was like the new thing. You know what I mean? And, Judaism had been this like long lasting thing and I think that's what you're doing like you're saying like going in the process of joining the group you're like you're saying I'm worthy of contributing to the legacy mm-hmm. of this it's it's just a way of thinking about and I think it kind of goes back to our previous conversation about how our mindsets have shifted from thinking about ourselves as a group an entity that exists together and moves forward as a group to thinking about ourselves as individuals that do that Mm-hmm. That was, there's actually a lot of really awesome sociological articles on uh, rugged individualism in the 70s and the alliance with like the rise in like Christianity, like those things actually intersected. And because Christianity in this country um, essentially became such the dom, I mean, it's always been the dominant thing, but there's like this overlap of like when capitalism individual capitalism was like really like hitting the head in like the 60s and 70s 
like Christianity, the like perception of Christianity kind of shifted. And it's almost like I am, it is my right or like my duty as a Christian to have my own individual success, almost like I have to have my own individual faith. Right, like you don't have faith as a Christian, and because someone else has a lot of faith, it's because you internally have your own faith. And it's like I equate that internal like growth and faith with my internal success. Like I did this, I am successful. And you're saying that personally, like you feel that way? No, I'm saying that that's sort of like there's a lot of research out there in the '70s about that. Really, those two things really intersecting. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's why. I agree there is such an overlap of like the spirit of capitalism and Christianity at the same time and this individualism. And it, and so it, it comes down to like you and it's less about like legacy with your tribe and your community. And it's more about I am choosing f- to be my own success and I'm not doing this. Uh, I'm not like building my faith so someone else can benefit from it. I'm doing it because I am going to benefit from it. And if others happen to benefit from my faith or benefit from my success, cool. But ultimately, like, it's up to me. I am the one mm-hmm. that 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 holds that. So, yeah. But to me, when I think about, like, like faith and I think about sort of, like, my spirituality, I'm able to maintain it myself for a while. I think that I I feel strong in my faith, but ultimately i know that i'm gonna need a community to continue to sustain that whereas for like judaism the community aspect never leaves you like there's never a time where you feel like you are investing in your own faith almost it's almost like you grow up with the community of judaism and you follow these these um these uh religious practices and then even when you become an adult and you go somewhere you 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 enmesh yourself in that community at the very beginning. There's never a I am doing this on my own thing as mm-hmm. a Jewish person because for Andrea, for example, even though we moved to Chicago, she still practices these things with her family, right? So when holidays come around, she's gonna go home or she's going to be on Zoom with her family and doing it. Or two, she's fine. She is actively working on finding a Jewish community in Chicago so that she is she will be continued to stay tethered to that community or that tribe but for me in Chicago if i never stepped foot in a church it wouldn't I, that would be normal yeah. that wouldn't bother me i would be fine but for her it's like she will always have to hunker back to community as a jewish individual cuz she's never going to be like well i'm doing this judaism thing for me and i'm doing all of these practices and celebrating these holidays by myself Ne- I would never catch her celebrating a holiday by herself. Yeah. Well, I bet it's also easier to because it's just, it's less mainstream. Christianity is so in the culture. Mm-hmm. It's so available. Um, and also, and so like Jewish practices and, and those things, you have to go to the right places in order to even view those things. And maybe that's a problem. I don't know. The world's so complicated, huh? It is. It's complicated and it's complex, and um, there's such a pro and con to it. I love that it is, but it also means that your mind is always like wondering, and you always have questions because the world is so complex. There's never like an abs. It, it feels like in this world that there are no absolutes. Besides my faith, 
on earth there is no absolute yeah and because of that my mind is always just swirling around and thinking about a million freaking things and it's hard sometimes to be a human and live in the world because you're like what about this what about that what about yeah you, you know it's interesting because i don't really have a faith anymore and i have felt kind of like a like i'm homeless in some capacities because i don't have a lot of people around me who think like me mm. And I'm not even looking for somebody who agrees with what I think. Really more, I'm looking for somebody who is equally as confused. Mm. And who hasn't made a choice. Because mm. there's a little bit of release that comes with that, right? Yeah. It's like you don't feel as isolated. You don't feel as alone. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, whew, somebody else in this room is equally as confused as I am. Yeah. It's like when you're in class and the teacher is explaining something and you're like, everybody's doing the work but me. And then you find <laughs> one other person in the classroom that's like, and you're like, Y'all, you don't get this either. I don't get this either. Cool. Yeah. Let's just hang out because we don't get this. It's like you're just trying to find that to sort of like be at a like homeostasis in your in your mind almost. And it's interesting because again, counter to Judaism, it's like if you were Jewish and you moved, the first thing that you would do was look for a community of yeah. other Jewish folks because you want to celebrate these holidays with community. But for you now, it's like you could move tomorrow and your first thought wouldn't be, I need to find a community of Jewish people. Yeah. Or, I need to find a community of people who don't have faith. Your first would be like, I just need to find a community, period. Yeah. Regardless of what they believe in. But if I was a Christian, I would probably think I need to get plugged into a church. Right. And I would probably feel that. Yeah. You, you, I think you would feel that way, but I just don't feel like it is such a huge emphasis for us. Right, like I thought about finding a church in Chicago when I moved, but it wasn't like the first yeah. thing on my mind. Whereas I feel like for Andrea, when we moved to Chicago, the first thing is like, where's the Jewish community center? Mm -hmm. Like that was like high up on the list of priorities. And for me, I was like, well, I don't need to be in the church because I can watch a sermon online and it feels the same. I can pray by myself. Yeah. But for Andrea, it's like if she if she were to pray, it would be a communal prayer. It would be yeah. like the whole family's praying. It's not just at like the her same time. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. And they're saying the same. So prayers. she wouldn't really even do it by herself at all. Probably not. No. Yeah, that makes sense. You would mm -hmm. do it together. You would do it together. So wow. That's the the that's powerful. Of my... That's powerful. I wish you were here. It'd be so much easier to talk about things <laughs> if like a person <laughs> who actually represents that group of people. Because there would be stuff that I would want to learn from her. We don't talk about religion a whole lot, but I would still love to learn how she sees it and perceives mm -hmm. it. You know, I think there's still so much learning that I have to do from her for in that regard, because I feel like I know so much about how she was raised Jewish. She went to Jewish day school. She knows Hebrew. She can speak Hebrew. She It's kind of broken now, but she can still speak it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I know that aspect of it, but I always am curious about, like, what does it mean for you now in Chicago as a Jewish person who is not plugged into a Jewish community yet? Is it is that part of what is bringing you stress and part of what is making it hard on you? And maybe more than I even realize. Probably, honestly, because oh, so, so I read a book. Um, it's been about two years ago now. It's called The Happiness Hypothesis. And I read a second book, and I've talked about these before, called, um, it was by Johan Hari, called Lost Connections. Mm. And those, both, both of these books tended to agree that one thing that we all need as humans is a connection to meaningful values and shared values, which is one thing that she gets from plugging in immediately to her Jewish community. Mm -hmm. Another thing is we need 
connections and strong connections with the community in general, which is which is the obvious one, which is what I should have said. The second one is uh, shared values. Not only does she have a group of people who's there for her, but she knows they immediately share the exact same types of values that she shares and she can expect certain behavior out of them and it's comfortable and it's home-like. She's with her tribe. It makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. She's with her tribe and I think that, yeah, it, it brings you all, it affords you all of those things and when she is with that and she's alive with that i think she just is able to put everything else aside and i just feel her i just sense that she's at a lot of peace when she's able to to be in those spaces and she's able to share in the practices and stuff like that and that's why i would never want to take that away from her all right guys we'll get back to just friends in just a second but I want to take this quick opportunity to talk to you about something that I just discovered recently. It's another podcast produced by our friend, Mr. Torrance Williams. Some of you guys know Torrance from No. Some of you guys know him from Manual. Some of you guys know him from UofL, like me. If you know him, I'm sure you'll love him. He's a really fun and interesting person. I had the privilege to sit down and talk to him on Just Friends recently, so look out for that episode. But I'm here to tell you guys about his podcast, Let's Get Uncomfortable. Torrance is a thoughtful man, he's well-informed, he's compassionate, and I think he has an interesting perspective that is nuanced and subtle, and he's taken it upon himself to try to share that perspective with the world in his new podcast, Let's Get Uncomfortable. He talks about the hard issues, the stuff that we don't necessarily tackle all the time on Just Friends. He's talking about what's going on right now in our city and in our country, and he's doing it in a way that I think appeals to everybody on all sides. So you need to check that podcast out. Let's get uncomfortable. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of the above. Check it out. Let's Get Uncomfortable by Torrance Williams. You will not be disappointed. There's new episodes every Monday. I encourage everybody out there listening to Just Friends to also check out Let's Get Uncomfortable. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. But who knows? How the fuck do we know? We're dumbasses. We are. We need her here. If she was here, it would be nice because then she could tell us how awful and wrong we are. She might, honestly. She probably would. She'd probably be like, you are so stupid. Oh, God. (laughs) So this is what I'm so jealous of, though, because like, if Mike moves to Chicago and then you got all your friends in your apartment building, you guys could just sit around and do this. Hell yeah, all the time. All the time. All the time. Man. It'd be sick. That would be the life. It would be. I feel like that is basically what that is what leads to like great art and great literature is great conversation. Like I watched a movie recently. I can't remember what it was. It was a bullshit movie. But basically it was like Owen Wilson goes back into time and gets to hang out in Paris in like he he's in Paris in modern time. He gets in a taxi cab, he goes back in time to Paris, like when Hemingway was there and Picasso was there and all these different artists were there. And he just gets to interact with them. And a big part of like the art and I think and the beauty of this place and of that era came from just all these brilliant people getting to be around each other and invest in each other and sharing each other's ideas and sharing each other's charisma. Mm-hmm. I mean, Greek philosophers, Roman philosophers. Yeah, right? same thing. Yeah. It's a very similar thing. It's like you would just hang out with um, a group um, of your friends are your other great thinkers and you would probably do, you'd probably have some, some, some incense burning. Yeah. You'd probably yeah. have some <laughs> things, you know, burning around you if you would to sort of lighten the mood. 
but for the most part like that would be where your creativity would flourish out of yeah and so you would go i would imagine like you would have a season of a few weeks where you might not be like producing writing or producing art but it's like you're gaining so much insight and so much experience that it's like all right i've collected two weeks of conversations now Mm -hmm. i can write this down and publish it or like now i can paint this like Mm -hmm. work of art or i can make this music yeah now i've answered this question so i can produce this thing or whatever exactly and it's done in community oftentimes it's not necessarily like one person sitting with their thoughts i mean maybe sometimes but it's i feel like you back in ancient times had so much of that communal like let's sit in the park and let's just actually discuss or even and like if you want to talk about like really ancient times like let's all sit around a campfire and just bullshit and maybe it's not philosophical that's another thing that i think that comes from that obviously great idea and great ideas can spring from conversation and just sitting around and bullshitting with people like this but also just great joy Mm-hmm. great joy comes from it too mm-hmm. even if you're not talking about anything worthwhile even if it's you and a bunch of your buddies who are just cleaning out a garage mm-hmm. or you're just you know you're working on a farm or you're traipsing through the forest with spears trying to murder a pig you know like and you're just bullshitting it brings joy to your life but there is an interesting thing that happens when you get certain individuals together who have the privilege to be able to think certain ideas and have access to certain ideas and spread certain understanding in like a safe and loving environment. That's what I love about podcasting. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Some of the best days that I have, or at least that I've had during COVID, which has been a, a very shitty time, are when I have phone conversations with folks for like two hours. Yeah. Like the other day I was on the phone with Bryce for, I think, two hours and then right before i talked to bryce for two hours i talked to my mom for two hours that day i was on the phone for at least four hours of that day and did really nothing quote productive but damn i felt great it was like six o'clock and i was like it was a good day man just because i got to talk to people yeah (laughs) and that brought me joy and i needed that shit so Mm -hmm. yeah literally this yep so how long have you guys been in Chicago now? Like six months? Not even. Not even six months? We moved the beginning of June, right around the time that, the day that George Floyd Damn, was so murdered. Like, oh my God, really? Was wow. the day that we were in the car driving to Chicago. Damn. Mm-hmm. It was a heavy day. It yeah. was, fuck man, that day sucked. It sucked for a lot of reasons. One, because I was in the car for like five hours <laughs> and it was hot. But the other reason was just like mulling over everything that had happened and this guilt that I felt about not about trying to start this cool, fun, new chapter in my life at the same time. Like another black man's like murdered in the streets. And I'm like, well, why do you feel guilty about that? That seems strange to me that you would feel (sighs) guilty. I don't if I had to be fully transparent, I don't I don't know. I shouldn't. But that's it. But it's the same reason why. I didn't even make an announcement or tell most anyone that I'd moved to Chicago. It didn't feel right celebrating something, even though it had nothing to do with George Floyd. Like I know people would be excited for me if let's say the next day I was like, just moved to Chicago and I'm now living with my girlfriend and I am, you know, starting a new job. Like people would have loved that. They would have ate that up. It would have been great. No one would have commented on like a post and been like, how dare you celebrate life when George Floyd was just murdered? Like no one would have did that. But I just have felt this overwhelming sense of like, I 
should not be cheering and be excited about anything because there is still a lot of hurt happening in the world. And while it's happening in the world, I can't be excited. And I don't think that's fair, but I I, I almost like punished myself mm-hmm. for being happy for just a moment because there's still pain. I don't think you should feel that way because I want you to feel joy because I, I love you. But I appreciate that you do. Uh, I guess I appreciate it's not the right word, but I, I can empathize with you. And I just would really like to, it impacts you so much. Like it, and that video impacted me a lot. It's a hard thing to see. It should. I mean, it's devastating. But like, and, and just loving another person, you know, and just not wanting to see something bad happen to another person like that. Yeah. You know, it's hard. But, you know, it's so easily, it so easily transitions from there, which is a clear tragedy, mm-hmm. and then gets so muddy and challenging to talk about. Mm-hmm. But one thing that seemed clear is that, like, it greatly impacts you. Yeah, I feel it deeply. I feel, I feel it viscerally. All of these situations and and and, and all of these tragedies that um, are at the expense of like black bodies, I feel it so deeply. And I don't know why. I don't know why it hits me so hard. Because at the end of the day. It's not, so. It, these aren't like people that I know personally. These aren't people that are in my family even. But when it happens to anyone, it's so hard to stomach. And it makes me feel so, like it feels so heavy. So even getting this new job, which I'm about to start on Tuesday, the day that I had the final interview for it was when the Jacob Blake incident happened. And... I couldn't even be excited in this interview about a prospect of something in my life that's going to bring me joy and relief, which is having an income and doing a job that brings me purpose. Even in that moment, I was like, I can't even be excited about being in this interview right now. And I should be. Why can't I be? Why do I feel this so deeply? And it has really nothing to do with me. And I couldn't figure that out. And so anytime these things continue to happen, it hurts more and more, and 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 it didn't in high school. Mm-hmm. Like black folks were getting killed in the streets when I was in high school too, right? Like friends of mine were getting shot in the streets too in high school and even in college. And it just didn't. I didn't even really register with it. I was like, oh man, that's unfortunate. And I went on about my day. But over the past four years, two things I've noticed about myself. Um, further left. I don't know why that happened, but I keep getting pushed to left. And I feel so much more deeply and reflect much more on my own race and what happens to my folks out in the street. I feel it so much more viscerally that it impacts my mood and it impacts my own joy. And I don't know why, but over the past four years, it that has happened. I think it's because you're so invested in it, you know? I mean, it's such a big part of like your life as like a person who studies sociology and you think about that and it's and in the process of learning about that, that those problems become so obvious to you and you identify so greatly with these individuals who you're seeing suffer these injustices and you're like, I'm in a position to maybe do something about this and you take that on as part of your identity. 
and it impacts you in a stronger way because you feel compelled to try to make a difference and it's challenging. And I think that's part of the reason why maybe I don't feel so impacted by it. Like, I hate it. I don't want to see anybody suffer. Like, and I don't care what they've done to other people. I want people to be treated fairly because I know Mm. how much it, I I hate to suffer and how much, and I think maybe that's why you have so much empathy also because I know that you've lost so much Mm -hmm. and it's been such a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, I think that's, I think what sociology does that I love is that it exposes realities that I'm not able to actively notice in my own individual experience. Yeah. But I think that's like, right. And so like, I think the time that you spent, the time that you've spent investing and learning more about it has just made it more of who you are. So you feel those things more personally and more internally, I guess. Yeah. Because I I think I'm constantly thinking about why things happen. Like I'm seeking answers and sociology is giving me answer or I think it's giving me answers that may or may not even be true but because it's giving me answers I don't like those answers mm-hmm. and because I hate those answers so much I am letting it influence like impact me globally right so for example like if I didn't get a job I'm thinking it's because I'm black but that's not always the case right I shouldn't default to that right because that may not be the reality, but I'm 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 thinking that it is because that's what statistics and that's what the data and that's what everything is showing me. So when I'm looking for answers in life, mm-hmm. and I've been rejected a lot in life <laughs> from a lot of women, and from jobs, from access to places, and so I think when that happens to you, when when sixteen year old you gets turned down by a lovely female, you want answers. Right. There's never a time where they like you are like, yo, you want to go out some time? And they're like, no, that you're like, ah, okay. Don't need an explanation. She just said no. And it's okay. La da da. On to the next one. Hell no. 16 year old me is like, but why? What's wrong with me? Right. And so we're always like questioning the why. And so I think in seeking out those answers, when I got heavy into sociology, I think I started to create these answers or like what I thought were answers. And I'm like, ah, it's because I'm not this or it's because I'm that. And because I'm that, that's why I don't need answers from them anymore. Never mind. They don't even have to tell me why they said no. I know why they said no, even if they don't know why they said no. And it's like, that's not true. Yeah. I don't know a damn thing. Yeah. I can make assumptions, but at the end of the day, unless they ver- verbally say what it is, I don't know. And so starting on that like journey of finding answers, in sociology has now sort of come out on the other side with this i think i know now and i think i have a full idea of why things are the way that they are and so whenever something in the world confirms that i'm angry because i'm like of course it happened because we knew that it would be that way and we knew that we would do that and we could have did something different and we chose not to right in my head i'm thinking we have the answers right? We know how to fix this problem with policing in America. So we should just do it and we're not doing it. And now I'm even more angry because we already know what to do, but we're choosing not to do it. 
But that may not even be fundamentally true. I don't think it is. We don't have the answers. I don't if think we, we had do. the answers, we would have already done them. Okay, but I'm yeah. imagining in my head that we do because we have all this research out in the yeah. world. But that's just not true. Well, we just had a ton of work that have been done by people to try to figure out what's the right thing. Mm-hmm. And then we tried to do them and they were never fully realized. Well, part of the reason they were never fully realized, I think, has to be that they weren't the right plan. Because mm. if it was the right plan, it would have been fully realized because it would have taken everything into account that needed to take place in order to get to where we need to go. So like now the question is, is like, what is the right plan? And that's fucking hard because what I think we're realizing is maybe the algorithm, you know, the plan is so complicated that humans don't have the time and the energy mm. to really put it together. And it would take a whole lot more, we could do it, but it would take the same type of cooperation that like built the pyramids or the Great Wall of China. And we're not doing that anymore as a species for some reason. We're not doing that anymore. We have different goals. We all have our own agendas. We're all individualized. We're We're not ready to come together as a unit. It's true. And because we're not, it makes it so hard to unify and create this, this thing and in in addition to that, because we've done that for so long, we have to now create things with so many other variables in mind. Yeah. Right? Now, it's not necessarily about equal. Because if we could still create something that is equal for everyone, then that would mean that everyone is already equal and we're, we're maintaining it. Yeah. We, we Because we went to this individual place, things became unfair for other groups, i.e. slavery, um, or it's even slavery in the Bible, Jews, um, i.e. slavery, Jim Crow, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, internment, like on down the line, like we became individual, more and more individualized. And because of that, we made outcomes for other groups unequal. And now it's so hard to create something because equity has to be in mind. And so... When I say that we collectively should create this thing or like we mutually decide as a group, now I'm saying that, okay, this group's going to get a little bit more than that group. Yeah. And I want you to be okay with that. And sometimes people have that awareness of like, okay, yeah, part of the tribe is breaking down and this part of the tribe needs a little bit more than this part. This part's fine. We're fine. It has. It's not that anymore. Now it's like, well, wait a second. Why are they getting more? We need that too. And well, it's like, no, you don't. I don't think it's ever been that because I don't think we've ever actually had a real global tribe. I don't think that's ever actually existed. Mm. And you're talking, the challenge you're talking about is not individualism. The challenge you're talking about is tribalism. The fact that we don't see ourselves as a global tribe. We see right, ourselves yeah. as smaller groups inside of it who have to conflict with each other. And that's not actually true. But it's easier to think that way. Right. And there's no zero sum. It's always decided that there's this zero sum game going on. And it's like, if I give this tribe more, that this tribe is not going to get as much. And that one thing that I'm giving them is finite and it's going to run out. Yeah. And it's like, mm, mm, no, most things aren't um, like money. For example, if I give more money or funding to this over here, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be any more money for what's over there. Yeah. It's well, like, money no. is fake. Money is fake. Money is fake. Money is fake. Money is bullshit. Money, I hate money. Like, we need money because it's a good tool, but the way that we use it now sucks. We don't use it well. No, not at all. 
And we also, it's also something about the system that in which we use it allows it to be hoarded in certain zip codes and shit like that, Mm -hmm. which is bad. I don't know how we got to this place, but damn, I mean, (laughs) I guess really what we are trying to talk about here is like, what do we do? What is the right plan? And the thing that you seem to kind of be hinting at is like, you're maybe realizing that you had bought into a plan that might not be the right plan. I think I had also somewhere along the way, and now I'm not sure what the right plan is and I'm not sure where to move forward. We live in a super crazy, interesting time. Like if you want to step back, I mean like obviously I I can understand really focusing in on policing specifically and, but even more so zooming out just a tiny little bit, uh, the criminal justice system in general and how it applies to low-income people and specifically people of color, like in an unfair way, um, talking about that, talking about how um, jails that make money, mm. talking about the war on drugs and how that has fueled um, this crazy system that over-incarcerates certain individuals like at a, at a much higher and unfair rate. We, we need to talk about those things. And you could, and you could spend, you could take a... a, a billion people's intellect and focus and focus it on that and it might take that to fix that problem but if you zoom out and just look at that and then also covid Mm. and then also the election the two individuals that are there and how they're just both not ideal Mm -hmm. really i mean like you can get into like nitty-gritty and you can say bad things about both of them but Mm -hmm. the the truth is is that they're neither of them are ideal Mm -hmm. nobody really wants those people and there's also the cool thing about the internet is now there's all these really fucking smart people out there and you can pick them apart especially the more you understand them and the more you understand their arguments you can see places where they're wrong but but you can they're also really smart and they're really ready to invest time and their ideas like and 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 they're putting out putting them out there in the world and it's obvious that now that there are better people who could be leading us. Truth. So what does what does that mean for the future? Does that mean that we stick with like voting like we do? Does it mean that we stick with like having a president? I think. Well, I God, I hate the I hate the two party system. I think the two party system is trash water, and so much of this shit is antiquated because we came up with this plan, the original plan called America in like seventeen seventy. It was a great plan then. And then exactly, we got way much more. We got we got the internet now, bro. Exactly. We got Google Dog. Exactly. <laughs> dog, in seventeen seventy six, most people were white <laughs> and in America and so and they were Christians. Yeah. And so it makes sense that most of the things that you were focusing on had to do with white, heteronormative Christianity. Mm-hmm. That makes sense in seventeen seventy six yeah. because that's the demographic that you're serving. And the fact that it's been able to last this long is frightening it- and upsetting well but also i think it's a testament to how bright the individuals who put it together were so i think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from the system that we have and there's a lot of great values that need to be taken from it and applied to whatever the next system exactly that we make is that's what the problem is is like we need a next system i think we do so often we're still focused on trying to go back to our maintain yeah I think and we it's like, stop. would y'all stop yes. fucking trying to maintain yes. the bullshit that we created in 1776? Right. This is what the country looked like in 1776. Motherfucker, there were like 
colonies, right? Like they're like we the the people that were being served white heteronormative Christians were the main demographic. And so it worked for them. But if you look at the main demographic of America now, that's not the case, mm-hmm. right? Like it's so much more robust and you have so many more life experiences and it's like, you're still trying to maintain something that only worked for one group. Why the hell are we still trying to pretend like we're only serving one group? Right. If we stop trying to serve that one group, then we make room for. All right. Well, what is going to make sense for our demographic? What is our demographic? Well, it's it's Latinx. It's black. It's queer. It's, you know, it's male and female. It's it's dot, dot, dot. How can we create a system that's going to serve all of them? That's going to be fucking hard. But that's something that we need to do, because if we don't, it's like we'll always have inequity because we're still only serving one section of the country. Right adequately so at this point we've moved into a realm where we're saying okay we see the value of the previous system yeah it was we cool. want we want to keep all the good things about it right and we want to take a lot of the ideals mm-hmm. and actually try to see them realized like all men are created equal you know like are all men should have equal opportunity is maybe a better way of saying that. Yeah. All men should have equal opportunity, maybe not to outcome because then that kind of negates personal investment and personal ownership, but into equality, like all men are created equal in opportunity or right. something opportunity. like that. Yeah. yeah. Like everyone should be afforded the same opportunity. So that's a great zip code. That's a great thing you take with it. But then like also trying to, but now we try to achieve those ideals. Right. So what does that look like? Does it look like we're we're way in the weeds now. We're like we're way <laughs> out and like trying to plan what the next government looks what like. What to do in twenty fifty. Yeah. What's the next government look like? Year after, 2000. You know, like after the uh like the AI has been created and exists and after, <laughs> after the Skynet. civil war is over and like the the left has fought the right and whoever wins has taken charge. Um, God, that's so, that's such a negative point of view to take. Oof. Some people think that that, some people take that point of view. What? That the, it's the, like the left and the right are going to battle. That we're heading towards like a civil war situation. I think we are. You see that in the past. You've seen it in other countries. I don't want that to be the case at all. I don't want it either, but I do think that we'll have another civil war. I think it'll be the right and left. I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to happen either. I think we're better than that. I think we're better at, Mm. as humans... I think we're better as I think we're better as humans, but I think the people that have the power aren't as as good as we think that they are. Do you think the people like that suck. want have the power want to see that because they want to just keep getting richer and richer and richer and richer and richer? Because you know, if there's a civil war, the people fighting it are going to be poor people. Oh yeah, it's going to be poor white trash Republicans and poor <laughs> inner city Democrats. Exactly, poor white trash disenfranchised Republicans. Yeah. And yeah, and Democrats, which, which I, are, I'm sorry for calling them white trash. You're all people and I love you, but you know, that's an easy way of, you know, getting people to think of the right demographic of people who are going to be the people who are fighting mm-hmm. in a civil war. God, for sure, God forbid, surely, surely we can avoid something like that, right? I hope. I mean, I, I hope, but I think it's it's going to take a unified vision and we and we have to be able to pull people back in i think like the folks that are being stretched for the right and the folks that are being stretched for the left we have to find a way to start pulling them almost like a tug 
like a rope tug. Like right now it's like tug of war. Mm -hmm. You got the right and the left and they're pulling the rope called like democracy or America. Mm -hmm. And they're like pulling it and pulling it. We need like someone in the middle that's going to like pull it back like a bow and it's Mm going to like bring them together. And I think that that's what we need so that like both sides of the coin are starting to sort of um, be able to compromise and be able to understand um, what each side wants, right? It's yeah. like if you are someone that's on the far right and you're like, we're just about America and retaining our values and mm-hmm. this, that, and a third, it's like, all right, but I need you to understand and I need you to concede a bit to the fact that we created this plan in 1776 and it's not working. Yeah. Stop pretending like it's working for everyone because it's not. I feel like we need a convention, a convention of brilliant people to just all come together and say, look, this shit is heading in a bad direction. Let's all just talk about what we want. Let's draft a new freaking plan. And let's try to figure out how we get there. And and the internet is a big, cool, interesting part of that because it could happen like, but then what happens, and this is what's challenging, is when you have large groups of people trying to work as a unit, individual personality starts to take in. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to be just the agenda of the most charismatic person, Mm -hmm. which always happens Mm -hmm. because we are monkeys we in essence we are monkeys and that sucks it does suck unless you come to terms with the fact that you're a monkey and you're just like yeah it's life and you're trying to get better than that and you're trying (laughs) to but i mean for real like that's such a silly way of saying it but we're primates and a lot of our the way we organize very similar to the way that like great apes organize Mm -hmm. so we can expect that there's going to be an alpha mm-hmm. person, a dominant personality. That makes the decisions. That, yes. Mm-hmm. And that leads the, at least, like, like say you had a big conference like that where all these minds were to come in. Maybe you've got a genius person over here with who has an answer, but they have a meek personality. They're never going to get to speak, mm. you know? So there's just challenges with all of that. But I think we need people to realize that we're all the same. But sometimes it's really, really hard to see yourself as being that global group, like we were talking about earlier. It's easier to see ourselves. I mean, even seeing ourselves as the city of Chicago is a huge feat. When you think about Dunbar's number, which is the, are you familiar with Dunbar's number? Mm -hmm. 150 individuals. And then you're identifying as the city of Chicago, which is thousands of individuals, most of whom you'll never meet. That's a feat in itself. And then seeing yourself as just a part of this global community of 8 billion, such, it's really hard to do. I mean, that number even in itself is, for most people, for, for me, I, it's hard to even imagine. You can't fathom. Yeah. Our, our brains don't work well enough to fathom 8 million. We can't. I think, so the last thing I'll say about this is that the way I sum it up is everybody is attempting to pursue their own happiness, and it's going to look different depending on who you are. So we should just allow and respect people to pursue it in the way that they want to, as long as it is not infringing upon your own ability to pursue your own happiness Mm -hmm. or putting you in danger or harm. And this is what makes me so happy is because you just said to yourself, you just said, like you feel yourself being pushed left. You feel like you've become more... Uh, I guess, liberal or you become more democratic or whatever you want to call it, more progressive. I mean, obviously what we were just talking about is a pr- progressive point of view, like what's the next system? That's that's progress right there. But mm-hmm. but that statement that you just made, 
if you were to say that to like my most conservative friend and say like that is that is a huge value that I have, he would smile and embrace you as a mm-hmm. brother. For real. Yeah, because it's and it should be. It's a unifying thought. Do you not want to be happy? Yeah, you, you do, and have autonomy, right? And be allowed to flourish if that is your choice. Exactly in the way that you want to. Yeah, without me telling you how you're supposed to be able to do it. Yeah, and they'd be like, "Hell yeah!" And I'm like, "Perfect. That's what everybody yeah. wants. So let them do what they want to do too." So I guess that's the <laughs> ideal, and then it's just like, how do you achieve it? Right. How do you like value and let people achieve their happiness in the way that they are? Right. Like if you, you may not agree with hip hop music, Mm -hmm. for example, and how like rappers are trying to achieve their own happiness, but that's let them do, let them do what they want to do. If that's how they want to achieve their happiness by buying cars and stuff, it's not (laughs) infringing upon your ability to go and do what you're doing on Tuesday. If you are, if happiness is you mowing your lawn, I'm, mow your lawn dude. I'm not gonna tell you how to do it it's making you happy I'm gonna leave you alone and so leave the person alone that wants to have a yacht and and like I don't know like or even better don't leave them alone and if you're interested in that also be friends with them yeah also that like and spread joy with them and, and love them ask questions not yeah, out of judgment but out of and curiosity grow, become, yeah. yeah and become a member of that community like that's the utopia it is is where you anywhere you go you are included you're a part of that place i don't know if we can get there i don't don't know i don't know i I don't know if humans are capable of that i wonder if it takes like technology well i think what this is where i I see us you ever seen the movie wally yeah that is us that will be us the fat people on the on the floating plane rolling around on floating things and we don't feed ourselves something feeds us something sustains us we don't even have to walk anymore that is going to be us one day. I fundamentally believe that we are heading that direction because yeah. everything is so automated that you don't even have to do it for yourself anymore because something else exists that'll do it for you. I agree, sort of, <laughs> but I actually don't think that's the direction it'll go. I hope not. No, I, this is if you saying I want it to. We just, will I, keep getting fatter. <laughs> I think we will. But I also think, I've read Yuval Noah Harari I've read all three of his books. I've talked about them a bunch, but I'm a big fan of them. Sapiens. Yeah, I know people love Sapiens. Homo Deus. And then 21 Lessons for the 21st Century was a good one. But um, in Homo Deus, he makes the prediction. And I tend to kind of agree with his prediction. It seems to make sense to me. He says, we've got two big driving factors. Infotech, which is this collection of data about us and who we are and what we think and what we like and what we buy, and then social media, which collects everything else about us, and biotech, which is this collection of information about what we are, what's our heart rate, what's our blood sugar levels, all this stuff, you, the whoop strap, all that junk. We'll know so much about what it means to be human that we'll be able to, we'll be able to integrate with technology, like the internet, like Neuralink, like, like what Elon Musk is trying to make. And he argues that only rich people will have that. And that 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 access to that will make them something else other than human. No longer homo sapien. He calls them homo deus. They're like human gods who have access to information that normal humans don't have. There's something totally different. And also they're, they've been biologically engineered to where they're 
physically fit. They'll never die, potentially. They might even be able to upload their consciousness into new different bodies or multiple bodies at the same time. Who knows? The possibilities are endless for what these this technology could create for humans. And then that you really have to ask yourself, like, what happens to humans who are normal, homo sapiens? <clears throat> and then you worry because humans, we don't treat things that aren't necessary to us very well. Because, like, at that point, regular old people just become, like, the way we see, like, chimpanzees. Lesser hominids. The previous thing. Damn. That's what he says. It freaks me out. It's like imagining a world where, like, these Helmandias just go to zoos to watch Homo sapiens be yeah. humans. But that would actually be, he, he argues, if... A big part of what those homo deus things will be will be integrated with the algorithms that are created by us. And those systems, and so the people who are working on those systems, there's a dude who I'm interested in whose name is Ben Ben Gertzel. And he works for a company called Singularity Net in Hong Kong. And they're trying to create an artificial general intelligence. So there are artificial intelligences that already exist. They're like the algorithms that choose what you see on Twitter and stuff like that. And they're good at figuring out what you like to buy and what you like to click on and what you like to interact with. But artificial general intelligence is something more like us that's capable of learning and maybe even forgetting things, mm. Pot- but potentially just capable of learning and learning all things and getting smarter and growing and, and becoming more and more capable and more and more competent. Um, and they're trying to create that, but they're trying to instill in it values that will result in a harmonious interaction between normal humans and this thing. So like, it will, the, these artificial intelligence will value things that will also lead to us prospering. Or Wally. We destroy the planet. That could also happen too. We Man. very potentially could destroy the planet before that happens. Man, this ended on a sad note. We had so much fun and then we just got so pessimistic. What, what's a positive that we could take this to? Hopefully these algorithms will make us better dancers. Oh gosh. <laughs> I hope it just we learn how to be great dancers. Well, I hope the biotech <laughs> can learn to hack my body to where I can eat like crap, but also be really fit. Oh my god! Mm, and then Could I can just be a great sexy dancer with long skinny legs. Like, ah, 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 I just ah. imagine eating chicken fingers as much as I want, and I never gain weight, and I never, never get sick. Never. Oh man! But that I don't crave them. I can choose when to crave them. Yes. Gosh, wow! Yes. What a cool thing. And you could live forever. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't want to live forever. Okay. Yeah. I'm good on that. Yeah. And let, yeah, no, I'm good. Nah. nah. You know that's, that's a deeper conversation. That is a deeper conversation. <laughs> like, like, because that's what I think babies are. Is a is our desire to continue something deep within us oh, as humans to live forever. Shit! Don't you're about to make my head blow up. I, I'm nev- I've never seen babies as that. Oh shit. I don't know if I'm ready for that one. <laughs> Holy shit. That's part like 16. They are us. They are our genes. Ooh. They are what we are. And then the, not only are they our genes, we raise them. They're our ideals. They're our ideas. They're our thoughts. They're our habits. They're our mannerisms. Jesus. They're our relationships. Just little copies of us and part of somebody else. <sighs> so all y'all parents out there, holla. Uh, maybe that's why I'm the second. I'm 2.0. Maybe my yeah. dad was like, yeah, I didn't do this well. Time to make a second <laughs> me that's even better. 
Yeah. I love you, Dad. You are you are great. I mean, I don't he, think he most people great. think of it that way. I don't think most people will think of it that way, obviously, but I think the compulsion that we all have. I mean, obviously, don't you feel compelled to have kids? I think that it wouldn't be a sexy thing to say at a at a dinner party to yeah. say, "Yeah, I'm trying to make another me." Yeah. Excuse me. Right. Yeah, I'm just trying to have a kid, you know, another me, so I can do it all over again. Yeah. And someone be like, "Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good luck with another you." Well, I mean, obviously, you're not trying to clone yourself. Well, some <laughs> right. people are. Some people, some people are, are trying to clone themselves yeah. as close as they can. There would, I mean, you know, sometimes I wish I could clone myself so I could do, I could talk to multiple people at the same time. Like I like have so many conversations. So like if you had a superpower, that would be the thing to make multi- multiple versions of yourself. I wouldn't have to worry about missing meetings, man. Yeah. It's like I wouldn't have to worry about scheduling two like situations together. Like one friend's like, oh yeah, let's get coffee on Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Cool. And okay. then someone else is like, yo, you busy 9 a.m. Wednesday? And I'm like, oh man, I wish I was because I want both. I want to do both things, but like you're here and they're there. So in this <laughs> imagination are all of your minds synced up at the same time and experiencing all of the different interactions at once or do they experience them individually and then come back together and merge later and then all of the experiences are combined back into you and who you are? Uh, option number two. Option number two. Yeah, because I would want to be a, like my own whoever I am in whatever okay. space. I don't want it to be like I'm like regurgitating the same speech in both places. And you'd be the one doing the thing I guess I would be. That was the most entertaining to you, I guess. Oh, shit. Right now. Oh, shit. I just imagine. (laughs) You you remember Men in Black? Yeah. I just imagine I'm that little tiny alien inside of the dude's brain, and I'm just like watching multiple monitors of myself doing shit, and I'm just like, what's Brian 2 doing? What's Brian D3 doing? And then I'm just like sitting back, and I'm like, Oh, I'm getting all this cognitive pleasure from all three of me's. I see. That's that's what I imagine it would be like because I don't know who would get to choose. It's like switching the channel. I don't want to switch the channel. That's fun. Holy shit, dude! I could do. I could talk to you all day. I know. But what? What? Do you have anything else going on today? Uh, I, mean, I know. I know you're DJing a wedding yeah. later, which is awesome. DJing a wedding back in the um back in the saddle um DJing, which is also a whole other conversation and something that I love dearly. Music. Um, and people dancing. I asked about engineering better dancers because uh, I'm going to see some terrible dancing. Oh, you think so? But, you know, sometimes I'm glad that we aren't all great dancers because it makes for great humor. Yeah. I love that. Um, so, yeah, so DJing, and it's kind of the crux of today, but, I mean, I guess globally there's a lot of cool things going on. I'm excited for this new job. I'm yeah. excited to explore more Chicago. I'm excited to hopefully get married in the very near future. Yeah. Um, so hopefully when we listen to this podcast like years later, I'm going to be like, remember when you weren't my wife? Yeah. And we were just talking about Gary. That'll be cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, we've done two hours. I feel like we've run the gambit. <laughs> I, I feel so. like we also haven't even scratched the surface at the same time. Oh, yeah. I was to say, we could definitely go on for two more hours, but I think at this point, people are probably like, I am not high enough for this conversation <laughs> any longer. <laughs> I've lost my buzz. But no, dude, I'm so glad that you got to be in town. Hell yeah. It's a blast. Yeah. Any, next time you're in town, just let me know. Always glad to come back to Louisville. I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for this community specifically because it's, it's so visceral and so well to me, but... Chicago is Chicago, but Louisville is always going to be Louisville. Yeah. So always yeah. great to come back and yeah. and share my life with the people. And thanks for coming on here and having a conversation with me. It's come Hell a long yeah. way. Is it, it was was it different than the first time? I imagine. Yeah. This is a lot more polished. This is uh, also the setup. I wish people could see this as they listen to how 
cool the setup is of this studio. Yeah. It just Oh yeah, I need to do I need you know what I need to do? Don't you move. I need to take pictures. Yeah, take some pics, all that good stuff. Mm, uh, oh my god, this is just beautiful. Man. Yeah, this is good. This is impressive. This this whole series is just been it's great to share, but it's also just great to hear from folks it's been it's been super inspiring to just hear people talk about their own life mm-hmm. experiences and to learn so much more about people that i thought i knew but got to go like deeper right yeah i think about Lindsay. i think about bryce i think about you know like you know chad and and all of your friends and and your cousin matt and and so like like people that i've just heard things from or like i've seen in passing but to just actually hear their perspective and stuff has just been like really killer so this is a cool idea that when i tell people about it they're like damn that's genius i appreciate it man i feel like i'm lucky to have people around me who are smart and thoughtful and who have an interesting point of view and sometimes maybe they're just entertaining (laughs) and so there you go i have a ability to capture that and to share it with other people and it's fun for me to do so and you were my very first ever guest. That's right. And I, I can't really wait cool. to do this again with you, man. Yeah. So thanks, dude. I appreciate you doing it. Absolutely. Love you, man. The whole love. Bye. Ugh. It's over, guys. Don't you just hate that? Don't you just hate it when Brian has to leave? He comes to my house and hangs out with me. Once in a blue moon, and I'm like, yes. And then he goes back to Chicago, and then my life is dark and sad until he comes back again. Next time he's in town, we're definitely going to do a Just Friends Couples. I know you guys don't know what I'm talking about. It's an idea in my brain that has not been fully manifested yet, but you'll get to meet Andrea, his lovely partner. You guys will love her. And until then, make sure you're sharing the podcast with everybody that you know. Tell them to check out the Facebook page. Tell them to check out the Instagram. Share them links. Send them over to the website, justfriendspod.com. Who knows? Maybe they'll stumble upon a conversation with someone that's near and dear to their hearts, and then the next thing you know, they've joined the Just Friends podcast community. It happens because of you guys. Justfriendspod.com. You can listen to any of the episodes. There are links to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts, where you can become a patron and support the show as little as $5 a month Let's me know that you love me and that you want me to keep doing what I'm doing here at Just Friends. It's greatly appreciated. All right, tune in next Sunday for an amazing new episode of Just Friends Podcast. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic week. Take care of yourselves. Be kind to one another. I love you all. Bye. Bye.